0: So when I was a junior in college a few decades ago, obviously, um, I had a weekend where all of my friends were in Dallas, but because my brother, who is super selfish, decided to get engaged that weekend, I couldn't go. And so my brother was getting engaged on a Saturday, and um, on Friday I didn't want to come home yet, so I stayed at Washita, which is where I graduated from, and um, I had nothing to do. But it was beautiful outside, and so I'm sitting in my dorm, eager to get out and do something, and thinking through what can I do alone, outside, and I remember that I had a guy that I knew, kind of a friend, kind of not, like we said hey to each other in passing, who owned a bike, and I'd seen him riding around the past few weeks, and so I messaged him and was like, hey, Chris, would you mind if I used your bike just for an hour or two? Um, I'll bring it back better than new. He said, yeah, of course. From out of my dorm, get the bike lock key, and you can unlock the bike and take it with you. So I go down, get the bike lock key, and as I'm walking out, he says, "Oh, by the way, uh, this bike, which is brand new and very expensive, uh, was abandoned about two weeks ago, and so I took the responsibility of taking the handlebars off the bike, taking the old bike lock off the bike, putting the new handlebars on." and my own bike lock on it, claiming this bike as my own. Basically admitting to me that he just stole this bike <laughs> at, on Washdall's campus, so it was a fellow student. Now, I'm just gonna use it for an hour. I'm not too worried about it. I take the bike lock key, unlock the bike, and I start riding. And I kid you not, 30 seconds into my bike ride, a car stops and a guy yells out, hey, that's my bike. So I do what any good future minister would do, I take off. <laughs> and about 30 seconds into going, I realize cars are much faster than bikes. So I stop, the guy gets out of his car, and I explain to him, this may look like your bike, but this is my friend Chris's bike, knowing that it was not Chris's bike. And he's like, hold on, hold on. He looks under the seat, and he says, "Is that initial look like a C for Chris? no it's a G for for G for G Allen my initials because this is my bike and so I I told him everything like yeah I just ride it for an hour and because my honesty my high character he allowed me to keep riding the bike around and he actually got his bike back from Chris Um, he would call me the hero of the story in all reality all because I was in the right place at the right time Now. Okay, Hello. Okay. so I was at the right place at the right time. Now, today is the last day of 2024, or 2023. Uh, before I get into the message, I want to share something cool that God has done in my life this year. So, 364 days ago, on the first day of this year, I had the privilege of going to the Holy Land. And on um, January 1st of 2023, I was actually in Jerusalem touching the Temple Mount. And while I was there, I wrote down a prayer and just said, Lord, use me however you want to this year, whether that be after I graduate, I go to seminary full time, if I go and work in ministry full time, or if it's something completely off my radar, use me however you want to this year. That was on the first day. Of this year, and now on the last day of this year, I stand before my new church home, sharing, teaching about the very thing I was touching on the first day the temple. So, with that being said, we're going to be in John 2 today, continuing our series in John, and it's kind of a scary passage, but it's amazing. So, you'll turn with me to John chapter 2, we're going to read verses 13 through 22. And it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered and the coins of the money changers, and he scattered the coins of the money changers. Um, can you can you go back? Sorry, I'll just read it from my paper. Um, He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Now, there are passages in scripture that will grab you by the hair on your head and plunge you into cold water and pull you out again. Leaving you feeling more alive than you've ever felt before and absolutely shocked. For example, when we read a passage like Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We sit back and think, what, Jesus? Or or when we read a passage like Matthew 5, 29 through 30, where Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out And throw it away For it is better that you lose one of your members Than that your whole body be thrown into hell And if your right uh, hand Causes you to sin Cut it off and throw it away For it is better that you lose one of your members Than that your whole body go into hell When we read that We shrink a bit And that's because With specific um, scriptures like that If we read them with any bit of integrity It's impossible to not walk away And change just a little bit Now, I bring those up because when John wrote this passage in John 2, he would have expected the readers to have a similar response. Now today, when we read John 2, we read the story of Jesus flipping the tables, we don't have the same response. We kind of hype Jesus up, like, yeah, you go, Jesus. But that wasn't the point. And we've lost that reaction because we've lost the meaning of temple. You see... I don't go to Josh during the work day and say, hey, let's go and worship at the temple at one o'clock today. Uh, I, don't, I don't talk about the temple on a day-to-day basis. No one does. And that's because we don't have them here. And that's okay. But because we don't have the temple in our day-to-day vocabulary, there is a bit of translation needed to fully understand this passage. And so before we move into the meat of this passage, we first need to understand What the temple was to a first century Jew Now the temple is first introduced in 2 Samuel 7 uh, verse 2 by King David Uh, Last week Jonathan talked about Governor Mike Huckabee And how he lived in a trailer park or a um, a mobile home uh, For a time while he was governor of Arkansas And how it made national news Um, And David realized kind of the same thing about the Lord he realizes in 2 Samuel 7 that he had this beautiful palace, this house of cedar is what he says. And God just has a tent. He says in 2 Samuel 7 too, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. I have this huge palace and God, you have basically nothing. I want to do something about that. Come on, son. So he goes to the prophet Nathan, and he, he brings his request to him. And God is highly honored, but he tells David, you can't do this. You're a man of war, a man who spilled blood, but your son will do this. And so his son Solomon takes the reins from him after David dies, and the first thing he does is build a temple. And after years and years of work, he, they finally finish And when they finish, he brings all the people of Israel together, and he prayers a prayer of dedication. And in 2 2 Chronicles 6, verses 18 through 20, he says this, But will you, God, indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. Originally, the temple wasn't called a temple. It was called a house. Because that is where God himself lived. Yet, notice, in these verses, Solomon also realizes... Not even this great house can contain you. So what scripture teaches is that God dwelt in the temple, but God didn't dwell in the temple. Let me explain by analogy. So there's a a famous childhood um, books called Narnia. And obviously C.S. Lewis is a Christian and he's really big on um, allegory. And in these book series, uh, there's two main realities there's a reality that the four main characters, Susan, Peter, Edward, and Lucy, find themselves in. That's, that's torn apart by war, and planes flying overhead, and families being torn apart. And then there's another reality that has a, 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 a great lion in it, and an evil witch, and talking beavers. But these realities are completely separate. Until Lucy, one day, discovers a wardrobe. And when she discovers this wardrobe to hide in for a game of hide and seek, she walks in... And then snow. She was interacting with a different place. Now, the temple was different than this wardrobe, but very similar. It was the converging of two different realities. N.T. Wright says this. He says, nobody, however, supposed that God lived most of the time in heaven, a long way away. And then, as though for an occasional holiday, a royal visitation, went to live in a temple in Jerusalem instead. Somehow, in a way most modern people find extraordinary to the point of being almost unbelievable that temple was not only the center of the world, it was the place where heaven and earth met. It was the gateway into eternity. And interacting with a different reality is incredibly dangerous. Which is why in the Old Testament, there's so many rules and regulations surrounding the temple. In order to to go to different places, you have to be this type of person. In order to to pray, you have to be be clean. And whenever these rules and regulations aren't followed, disastrous results come about. But as dangerous as it was, it was needed. You see, since the beginning of time, since (coughs) the fall, human beings have wrestled with evil and with suffering and and finiteness. We all long for eternity. I'm 23 years old. I'm not old by any means. But I am getting to a point in my life where I realize things are not forever. My relationships aren't going to last. My health won't stay. My brain will deteriorate. And when I think about these things, I hate it. I really do, and I know I'm not the only one in the room. We weren't meant to be temporary. We weren't built to die. We were meant to live, and the temple says there's a place where you can. Three months before I graduated college, I was talking to a mentor about not wanting to leave. I'd spent three and a half years at a place, forming, cultivating community with people that I loved, made this place my home, and then on one random Saturday in May, I was, you're you're gone, goodbye, go find something else to do now. And I, I didn't want that to happen because I knew all, everyone I lived with, my my apartment, we we're all living in different states now, and I knew that was coming. And that just that broke my heart. And so I'm I'm pouring out my heart to this to my, this mentor, knowing that there's nothing I can do about it. And he says, Your desire is noble, Gary. A day is coming where goodbyes will never be said. Right now. We'll get to experience these things for an eternity. And isn't an eternity just the right amount of time? That's what we were built for. That's why we need a temple. We weren't built to die. Now, in this passage, in John 2, the temple that Jesus walks into, there's a major problem. It was a sham. You see, um, about a, a century before Jesus gets there, another man does by the name of Pompey. Pompey was a Roman general, and at this time, Rome was conquering the world, taking over the world. They were, they were united And they um, laid siege. They 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 conquered Jerusalem. They battled them for three months. And while they're battling them for three months, Pompey's interest grows on one thing and one thing only: the temple. Because he's heard the rumors about it. He's heard that it's the most holy place on earth, and he is growing to hate the Israelites, the Jews, because of their rebellion. And so his plan is, when he destroys them finally, he's going to march into that temple, see what's on the inside, tear it down and have his way with them. So after three months, he wins, and he walks in. Tom Holland, a, uh, a scholar, um, who's actually not a Christian, writes this in his book, Dominion, about the incident. He says, to Greek scholars, the question of what might be found within this holy of holies was a tantalizing one. Abyssinus, never knowing without a theory, claimed that it contained a golden donkey's head Others believed that it held the stone image of a man with a long beard sitting on a donkey. Others have reported that it served as the prison of a Greek captive who after a year of being fattened up would then amidst awful solemnity be sacrificed and devoured. Pompey, pausing before the curtain to screen the room from a treasure-filled antechamber could have no certain idea what lay beyond. In the event, though, he found only emptiness. The place where God lived was empty and that's because of an event that happened in the book of Ezekiel you see Ezekiel is a prophet who lived at the very end of Israel's life and up until this point in history for a few hundred years the people of Israel had shed blood innocent blood of children worshiped foreign gods in the temple itself And not just once, but over and over again, year after year. And it got to the point where God was done. So he shows Ezekiel this vision of the temple and the presence of God in the temple. And it leaves. The gateway was shut. The eternity was no longer accessible. And when that happens, the Babylonians come in 587 BC and utterly destroy Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple, but God doesn't come back. Never in the Old Testament, after that moment, does it say God comes back until this passage. All right. And when Jesus walks in, okay. he's mad. Look at verses 15 through 16. He's in making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep. And oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take the things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The temple that Jesus walked into was no longer the house of God, it was a house of trade under the banner, house of God, and because of that, Jesus was infuriated, and Jesus knew this wasn't his father's house, because Jesus knew he himself was his father's house, Look look at verse 19. He says, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then in verse 21, John clarifies that Jesus is talking about his body. What Jesus is saying is the eternity that you long for, I am the key. The God that makes his home here is found in me. And guess what? This temple walks This temple hears. This temple bleeds and weeps with those he loves. Temples were supposed to be places where people went to God. This temple is a place where God is coming to people. That's what makes Christianity so different from the rest of the world. God comes to us. That's the first thing this passage teaches us. There was a, a conference, a British conference, uh, about 100 years ago, where all these world religion scholars um, gathered together to, to debate, what makes Christianity different from everything else? And for about an hour, they debated and brought up different ideas. At one point, someone brought up the idea of uh, incarnation. And they debated about that for about 10 minutes, and they realized, no, there's other religions where the idea of incarnation is found. And so... Uh, Another idea gets brought up, the idea of resurrection, and how that's original to Christianity. And they realize that there's other religions with this idea of resurrection at the end. So they're scratching their heads, what makes Christianity different? And then a guy named C.S. Lewis walks in the room, and he's, what's all the fuss about? And they, they, they spill out the question, and he laughs. And immediately says, it's easy. Grace. What makes Christianity different is Grace. And they debated it, and after about five minutes, they realized, he's right. The first thing this passage teaches us is that God comes to us. Yep. We don't come to God. Come on, son. Now, there's two responses to this that I think are amazing. There's a the religious response found in this passage, and then there's the disciples' response. Right. The religious response is found in verse 20. Or John writes, Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? Fun fact, at this point in history, the temple still wasn't even done. After 46 years of hard labor and hard work, the temple still wasn't complete. So basically what they're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, it's taken 46 years to get to the point where we're at now, and we're still not even halfway. There's still so much work to be done. And you think you can do that in three days? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Do you realize the blood that has went into making this place, the muscles that have been used, the sweat that has been dripped from people's foreheads? Who do you think you are to say you can tear this down and rebuild it in three days? And to that, Jesus would have said, I can do this with the snap of my fingers. This is no hard task for me. And believe it or not, we are so similar to the people in this passage. We know there's a gap between us and God. We know we need a doorway, a gate, a bridge between us and the eternal. And we know there's work to be done. And so one of the greatest temptations that we experience Is to work and work and work and at all the time wondering is God pleased with me? And if that's your outlook on it, the answer is no. You see, here's what would happen if you continue to build like they did. At this point, it had been 46 years. 40 years later, in 87, they're still building. The temple isn't done. And the Romans ransacked Jerusalem again. And as Jesus says, not one stone was left standing. Not only did the temple never get done, but it was utterly destroyed. If we build our own temples, they will never get done and they will be utterly okay. destroyed. Okay. The work of reaching God okay. is too much indeed. So that's the religious response. The next response is the disciples' response. And I love this. If you look in verse 22, it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, John is saying, when Jesus is in the temple flipping tables and claiming to be the temple, the disciples are in the background thinking, what do you doing, Jesus? <laughs> when he says he is no they have no idea what he's talking about it's not until years later when he's killed that they realize oh okay now we understand now though they didn't understand what jesus was doing and saying they didn't laugh at him like the pharisees they just put their heads down and followed after him. paul makes this argument in romans 4 in romans 4 he brings up a passage of abraham he says, "As it is written, "I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence, existence that do not exist, Abraham believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be." He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead. Since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do, therefore it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham was living in this this reality. He was old. His wife was old. It was not very promising for the fact of having a child. But then God comes to him and says, you will be a father. Sarah will be a mother. You have a choice to trust what you see or to trust what I say. And we're faced with the same choice. We can either trust what we see, which is my sin, the brokenness of the world, and the gap between me and God, and either fall into despair or become a workhorse that leads to nothing. Or we can trust what God has said and the work that He has done. The disciples' response is the only true response that leads to life and to joy and to peace. And as 2024 comes, this is a question you must ask yourself every single day. Am I going to continue to build? Or am I going to rejoice in what Jesus has already built? uh, Because you want to know how He built it? His body was destroyed. Utterly torn apart. Pierced through the hands and abandoned by God. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Doing what we can never do. In conclusion, I want to tell a story from a Scottish pastor, minister named uh, Alistair Begg. In this story, uh, or analogy, he talks about the thief on the cross... And he says, One of the first things that I'm going to do when I get to heaven is find this guy. Because I got to know, how did things shake out for you? One moment, you're, you're on the cross, you're cursing out this guy uh, for a crime you committed. The next moment, you're standing in glory, probably wondering, How in the world did I get here? Just, just imagine an angel comes up to him and says, what, what are you doing here? And he looks and, I don't know what I'm doing here. So, okay, let me get my my, my uh, angel that's in charge of me. We're gonna we're gonna ask you a few questions. So, the angel comes back and they ask him, "Tell, tell us about your view on the doctrine of justification by faith." And the, the the man looks utterly confused. What 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 is that? Okay, tell us about the doctrine of scripture. What what, what do you think about that? What what scripture? And then the angel. Annoyed, annoyingly asked, on what basis are you here? And the man says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Jesus Christ is the temple. Whereas John says in John 14, he is the way, the truth, and the life. 2024, your goals should not be to become more religious or to get good with God. In 2024, your goal should be, one, to see what Christ has built for you. And then two, to grow in thankfulness for that every single day. If you do that, you'll find the life you desire most deeply will follow closely in pursuit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your temple. We know in Revelation it says there is no temple in the new kingdoms in the new earth, in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's because we're fully there. We love you so much, and we'll never comprehend what you've done for us, but we can try. And I pray that as we try to comprehend, we lay down our hammers and our nails, and we stop building, and we rejoice in what you've already built. For by doing that, we will indeed be free. Free from the need to prove ourselves. Free from the need to be praised. Free from the need to be right. Bless this church. Bless 2024. May your presence be all over this place. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.